Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. All right, well, good evening. I'm going to tell you, it is a blessing to be here with you for so many reasons. One of my favorite things about travel is worshiping our King together. Amen? Little taste of heaven, I think. What a blessing that is. All right, well, I am from Answers in Genesis. Before we get into all that, a little introduction of myself and kind of who I am. I need to show you my greatest earthly blessings before I do anything else. So let me find the presentation here. Don't beep at me. Oh, there you are. I wondered where it went. Hold on, I went to sleep on me, so I'll pull it back over here. There we go. And now we are ready. So, right there, there are my greatest earthly blessings right there. Yeah, praise God. (laughs) That's my wife, Marla, of 25 years this past June. Amen. People say she doesn't look that old. I say we married when we were 12, and I just roll with that. I would just keep going. And then my son, Ian, who is nine, about to be 10. My daughter, Macy, who is five, about to be six. And then those are my greatest earthly blessings. And really the first kind of like five minutes or 10 minutes of my presentation is just me showing pictures of my family. So sit back and enjoy that real quick. There you go. More pictures. We have a dog now. We've got a golden doodle. He's not really golden, but technically a golden doodle. All right, so there's Boomer. And then that's the most recent picture of our family. And I'm going to unplug this real quick. There's a problem with my screen, so let me unplug. Plug it back in. Maybe that'll make it go better. Give me one second. I think that should help. Computer's a little confused. That'll work. Come on. Let's all pray together now. <laughs> I know, right? But we got a running joke in the ministry that uh, when Jesus cast the demons out of the guy into the pigs and ran out the cliff, where did the demons go from the pigs after that? Into technology. That's the thing. <laughs> You know, when it doesn't work, that's really what's happening there. Just saying. <laughs> and then I've been with the Ministry of Answers in Genesis for almost 10 years. kind of hard to believe that. But before that, I was a Bible history teacher over in a public school uh, over in California. Can you believe that? No, it wasn't in California. It's in Tennessee. You know that's not happening in California. Come on now. But... <laughs> No, I did teach Bible history for 13 years over in Tennessee and joined Answers in Genesis roughly nine and a half years ago. And who we are as a ministry, we are a biblical authority apologetics ministry. And that does not mean we're teaching Christians to apologize for their faith. And the word apologetics means to give a defense for your faith. Taken from 1 Peter 3.15, we're commanded by our God to be ready to give an answer for our faith and meekness and respect and fear. And so we want to encourage, equip, and challenge Christians to stand on God's word, to defend the faith, to proclaim the gospel effectively. And hear me right up front, you'll hear this echo throughout the rest of the night. The passion behind what we do and the equipping we desire to do with all believers, it's not simply about winning a debate about the age of the earth or rock layers or dinosaurs, even the social issues. We give good answers. But the point of giving these answers is to defend biblical authority and the gospel rooted in that authority. And that really is our passion in all this. We do this in a bunch of different ways. Maybe you're familiar with us, but we have a couple of major attractions over in northern Kentucky, right below Cincinnati. The first one is the Creation Museum. Anybody been to the Creation Museum? There are a few Christians in the room. Very good. That's great. All right. (laughs) Totally kidding. All right. But hey, if you get a chance to go, we'd so encourage you to go to 75,000 square foot walk through biblical history. As we walk you through biblical history, we're answering the skeptical questions of this age. If the Bible is true, what about evolution? What about dinosaurs in the Bible? Who did Cain marry? How did Noah get the animals onto the ark? And all sorts of stuff. And we're showing people a very simple, fundamental truth that the Bible is true. The Bible is right about everything. It's right about history. It's right about morality and sexuality. It's right about salvation found in Christ alone. Because this book really is the word of the living God. And God gets everything right. Put your faith in him. That really is our message. And then the other attraction we're more well known for is the Ark Encounter. Those crazy people in Kentucky who rebuilt Noah's Ark, that's us, all right? A life-size replica, at least, of Noah's Ark. And again, kind of the same sort of thing, another attraction, but we're giving answers. We are showing people the Bible is true. It makes the Bible come to life when you see that massive ship, the actual biblical dimensions. 
and we're showing people their answers about the rock layers and the fossils and the age of the earth and carbon-14 dating and so forth. At both attractions, there are zoos, there's a planetarium, special effects theater, virtual reality ride. There's so much stuff there, but all of it is meant to demonstrate God's word is true. And if you ever get a chance to come to Northern Kentucky and check those things out, your faith will be encouraged, you'll be equipped, you'll be challenged, and you will love it. I heard someone say the other day, it's like a Christian Disneyland, all right? But it's better because it's rooted in truth and to the glory of God. And so if you get a chance, be sure you go check that out. But what I want to do for us tonight is really kind of lay a foundation for why we are so passionate about the mission and the message that God has laid on our hearts as a ministry. And why we're so zealous for this. And I will start off by saying we're so passionate about this stuff because we have recognized something that I'm sure you guys, you guys have recognized. And that's this. That our nation is headed in the wrong direction. Have you seen that? It's not just in California, by the way. It's the entire U.S. And really, it's the entire Western world. We're seeing the collapse of the Christian worldview. But the fact that it's happening in America, if we stop and pause for a minute, it's pretty astounding. Because if you think about it, America is the most Christianized nation the world has ever seen. In America, we have more Bible colleges, more seminaries, more churches. We have more Christian radio stations and television stations. In America, we have, think about it, more Christian resources than any nation has ever had in all of history. Isn't that crazy? But for all those Christian resources, are we becoming more or less Christian every day? What's the answer? Man, less and rapidly so. Newsweek, way back in 2009, almost prophetic in a sense, if you will, they had this as their cover, the decline and fall of Christian America. And inside they said this, the present in this sense, it's less about the death of God, and it's more about the birth of many gods. And here's what they're saying. We used to be one nation under God, but now we are one nation under many gods. Isn't that great? See how tolerant we are? But in truth, at a foundational level, did you realize there are actually only two religions? People say two? Just two. Here they are. Either God's word is your authority and you build your thinking from there or reject God's word. What are you left with? Man's ideas in some way, shape, or form as your ultimate authority. Those are your two foundational religions. God's word versus man's. And everybody's got faith. Just where do you put it? And what we've seen in our culture has been this foundational shift away from God's word as a foundation to much of our moral and cultural thinking to now man's word has become the ultimate authority. Man now determines truth in our culture today. And that's why truth is so relative in our culture because each person can determine their own truth. And that's why as we look around, our culture looks a whole lot like Judges 21, 25. When there was no king in Israel, every man did that which is right in his own eyes. I mean, doesn't that sound like America today? And so we see headlines dominated by these sorts of issues. And we're seeing this chaos, this tornado of moral relativism, this moral revolution sweeping through our culture, capturing generations of hearts and minds of peoples in this culture, especially the coming generations. We're seeing the collapse of the Christian worldview. And friends, we realize this, we see this. Our question is why. And I think the way we think about this as Christians is why isn't the church, why aren't Christians influencing the culture like we used to. Here's what we suggest. So often today, Christians are not influencing the culture. Why? Because in so many cases, culture is influencing the church. Oftentimes, as Christians, we are compromising God's word in different areas. We're undermining biblical authority. As a result, we're seeing the collapse of the Christian worldview. That what has taken place has been an attack on God's word. Yes, outside the church, that is true, but also inside the church. And friends, that has been catastrophic. And the fact that God's word is under attack, that's not new. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When the devil said to Eve, did God really say? The first attack from the enemy was on the authority of God's word. Did God really say that? You have to believe it. And notice what he was doing. Getting Eve to question God's word, to doubt God's word, to reject God's word. We call it the Genesis 3 attack. And the method was so effective, he's used the same method ever since. Different forms, the same basic attack. And one of the main ways he's doing this today is through the teaching of things like 
evolution, eight men, big bang, especially millions of years. Using those sort of secular, atheistic ideas to get so many people today to watch this, question God's word, doubt God's word, reject God's word. Same basic attack with a different stealth twist. Today, primarily he's attacking the Bible's history to undermine the Bible's authority, to undermine the gospel rooted in that authority. Because here's the bottom line, and this makes sense when we think about it. If you can't trust the Bible's history, why on earth trust it about anything else? If you can't believe or trust Genesis 1.1, why trust John 3.16? If you can't believe the beginning of the book, why would you trust the middle or the end? And for so many people today, this is their stumbling block to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even though many Christians have missed it, friends, the secularists, the atheists, they understand that a great way to undermine the gospel is to attack the Bible's history, undermine the Bible's authority, and the gospel rooted in that authority. Give you an example of this. I'm going to show you a clip of this guy. His name is Lawrence Krauss, the former professor of physics at Arizona State University. Clips from 2009. I want you to hear what he says. Hear the reaction of his students. And he's a very well-known atheist, by the way. And as you hear all this, just understand this is a good example of where and how the attack on biblical authority is primarily happening today. The amazing thing is that every atom in your body came from a star that exploded. And the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than your right hand. It really is the most poetic thing I know about physics. You are all stardust. You couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all the things that matter for evolution weren't created at the beginning of time. They're created in the nuclear furnaces of stars and the only way they can get into your body is if the stars were kind enough to explode. So forget Jesus. The stars died so that you could be here today. Okay? And, and anyway... Which is worse? I don't know. His statement or the reaction of his students? Right? But notice what he's basically saying. Forget Jesus. He's not your savior, God. Why? He's not your creator, God. You're not here because God made you like the Bible says. You're here because stars exploded. Basically, the Bible's wrong at the beginning. Why trust it anywhere else? But Lawrence Krauss said at a different conference, he said, change is always one generation away. So he said, if we can plant the seeds of doubt in our children, which sounds like Genesis 3, by the way, religion, he means Christianity primarily, will go away in a generation, or at least largely go away. And that's what I think we, the major cultural influencers, have an obligation to do. Friends, I'm just glad he's neutral about all this. He's not, right? Then nobody can be. But he's right about one thing. Change is always one generation away. We see it in biblical history numerous times. We see it happening right before our very eyes. According to numerous studies now for decades, an average of around two-thirds of kids today who grow up in Christian homes are walking away from the church by the time they reach college age. Two-thirds are walking away on average, most of whom don't return anymore so we want to figure out why and what to do about it, how to rightly respond. So we did a research project with America's Research Group and interviewed those who grew up in a church setting but walked away later on in life. And we asked those who had walked away, over a thousand of them, if you don't believe, keyword when, did you first have doubts? And please note, the doubts did not start in college. Over 80% of them had all these doubts starting in middle school and high school. Don't we tend to think it all starts in college? Right? They seem to be fine while they're with us, growing up in our households, going to church through middle school and high school. I mean, they're nuts when they're in middle school, granted, but they're still with us, right? And then they go off to the secular universities, and people like Lawrence Krauss and the culture pulls them away. That's what we think. But the research shows that those who walk away had all these doubts, all these questions, starting in middle school and high school, if not before. They got all these questions that, for the most part, were not getting answered, at least not at home and not a church. What well, sort of questions? Well, the same sorts of questions I heard for 13 years, teaching Bible history in a public school in Tennessee, working with youth for 20 years in the church in different ways. Questions like, well, how do you know the Bible is the Word of God? 
And if it is, then where did God come from? And by the way, who did Cain marry? If we all come from Adam and Eve, how do you explain all the different people groups all around the world for different physical traits? And the Bible is true. Then how did Noah get all those animals onto the ark? And is there any evidence for a global flood? And where did the water for the flood come from? And where did it go? What about dinosaurs in the Bible? Did dinosaurs evolve into birds? Doesn't that disprove the Bible? What about radiometric dating and distant starlight? Doesn't that prove millions and billions of years old? Doesn't that disprove the Bible? Why is there so much death and suffering in this world? Hasn't science disproved the Bible? Isn't the book, isn't the Bible an outdated book of old mythology we should reject? Have you heard some of those? Thank you. That's a lot of work. I appreciate that. <laughs> we hear those because this is primarily where the attack is happening today. Friends, you see, for so many people, they think the Bible cannot be trusted in this quote-unquote scientific age. And then here's the kicker. They're coming to us for answers. Hey, Christian mom, dad, grandpa, grandma, pastor, Sunday school teacher, Christian friend. If the Bible's true, what about evolution? Who did Cain marry? What about dinosaurs in the Bible? And then the question today about how do you know marriage is a man and a woman for life? How do you know only two genders? And give me answers if you have any. And what has been our general response to those sorts of questions for decades at least? We've been saying something like this by and large as Christians. We've been saying, you know what? I don't know about all that stuff. Who did Cain marry? Dinosaurs in the Bible, blah, blah, blah. I don't know about that stuff, but don't worry about it. Just trust in Jesus. And we want them to trust in Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. Christian church, just checking. All right. (laughs) Of course we want them to trust in Jesus, no doubt. But hear me, when we ignore their questions, even with the best of intentions, and we just say that, we're ignoring their fundamental question. Here's what they're asking us. Mom, Dad, why should I trust in your Jesus? Because the message of salvation through Christ alone, that message comes from where? This book, the Bible. And hey, mom, dad, pastor, friend, if I can't believe this part of the Bible over here, why trust it anywhere else? Either all of this book is authoritative and true or none of it is. That is the core issue. And that's why we care so much. And what the research really showed is that those who walk away, really they're walking away in their hearts and in their minds before they ever leave physically for college. They're sitting in our pews, in our homes right now, and they're already gone. And then we asked them their reasons for leaving, and the research showed that one of their main reasons for leaving the church, they said, was hypocrisy. And we said, okay, we kind of guessed that, uh, but would you do us a favor? Define hypocrisy. What do you mean by hypocrisy? And this is what the majority said on their own. It wasn't multiple choice. They said, well, we grew up in church. And we were told in church, this book, the Bible, is the word of God. Trust what it says, especially that part about Jesus. But then they said, we were told later on, in some way, shape, or form by a Christian they respected, that we as Christians, we don't necessarily really believe the first part of the book. And you can take evolution, eight men, big bang. You can take man's secular atheistic ideas and reinterpret the first part. It's not that important. Just be sure you believe the rest of it and you trust in Jesus. And they see it as hypocrisy and rightfully so because it is. And because that sort of compromise, we've seen so many testimonies over the years like this young man's. Yep. Yep, how I became an atheist. I was born into a Christian family and indoctrinated as, uh, growing up as a kid. That next year was freshman year of high school, and I started learning about evolution in my biology class. Then uh, that's where I realized I had never seriously questioned or thought about my religious beliefs. So as I learned about evolution and just started thinking philosophically about it, I realized that there couldn't be a God. So I became an atheist. And that sort of testimony reverberates through our culture today because of so much compromise on God's word. And the news gets worse before we get to the good news. But Generation Z, the latest generation for the most part, they are twice as likely as any previous generation in our culture to profess atheism as their worldview. George Barna called them the first truly post-Christian generation. And two-thirds are walking away from the faith. And guys, hear me. I know that maybe many of you, like myself for the longest time, had the best of intentions when we said, when I said, I don't know about that stuff, trust in Jesus. We had really good intentions. But can't we, even as Christians, have some really good intentions and still get some really bad consequences? 
possible, right? I know this is a really heavy talk, especially late on a Thursday night, so let me give you a light-hearted example of when Christians had good attentions but got bad consequences. Let me show you some bad church bulletin titles from back in the day. One's like this one. The peacemaking meeting scheduled for today has been canceled due to a conflict. Don't let worry kill you off. Let the church help. <laughs> how do you vote that? I don't know. I just wonder how that works. At the service tonight, the sermon topic will be, what is hell? Come early, listen to our choir practice. <laughs> you know that's funny, right? You know that's funny. You guys have no worries. These guys are killing it tonight. Praise God for that. And then Barbara remains in the hospital. She's having trouble sleeping and requests tapes of Pastor Jack's sermons. (laughs) Good intentions, bad consequences, right? And guys, in a serious way, when we compromise God's word with the secular thinking of our day, even with the best of intentions, you'll get the worst of consequences. We stand on God's word. And also we saw that in the way we are teaching the Bible, it's causing many to really struggle with trusting it. You see what do you mean? Well, so often today when we teach the Bible, especially to kids, but not just them, and we're going to study the Bible, we tend to say, hey, today we're going to read this great Bible story. But of course, what does the word story tend to mean in our modern language? Uh, fiction, fairy tale, not true. It's what people hear, especially kids, is, hey, we're going to study a fairy tale today. A story with maybe some moral or spiritual truth, but not connected to reality. I think we show our kids pictures like this of Noah's Ark as an overloaded bathtub. <laughs> and guys, let me be honest with you. These pictures creep me out. Here's why. Think about it. They're all smiling and the whole world is being destroyed. I mean, think about it. It's not right. I know the picture is meant to be cute for kids. I understand that concept, but kids are so impressionable. You show a kid a picture like that, does that tell that child, Noah's Ark and Flood, real event in history like the Bible says, or a fairy tale like the world says? And we're reinforcing a secular idea whether we mean to or not. And again, for so many people, not just kids today, they've got all these questions they're being bombarded with in our culture today. And they're coming to us for the answers. And for the most part, within Christianity today and churches and Christian ministries throughout America, throughout the West and the world, for the most part, hear me, we are not doing apologetics. We've not equipped ourselves nor the coming generations to know what they believe and why. Instead, we just teach them stories. So where do they go to get the answers to their questions? Well, they go to the only other alternative, which would be secular sources. They go to secular textbooks, secular teachers, secular museums and zoos. They go to Google. They go to Wikipedia, YouTube, TikTok. Lord help them. (laughs) But from those places, they learn the secular view, the secular truth about evolution and the age of the earth and dinosaurs living millions of years ago. People evolved from maybe like creatures. They learn that gender is fluid. You can be whatever you want to be. And sexuality can be whatever you want to be. There's no really definition for marriage. And what they get from all those sources, hear me, They're getting secular apologetics. They're learning all the reasons the Bible must not be true and can't be trusted. What are they getting at church? Stories. And when you think about it like that, it's not so surprising so many are walking away from the faith. And guys, that history in Genesis, not a fairy tale. It's real history, and it's really important. And we summarize that history with the seven C's at our ministry. The first four C's, creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, that is Genesis 1 to 11. That is the geological, biological, anthropological, astronomical, real history of the universe that lays the foundation for the last three C's, which are Christ's cross consummation, a summary of the gospel. And I like to say these seven C's, they are married and they cannot be divorced. A couple quick examples. Think about it. At the beginning, in the original creation, there was no death. No suffering, no bloodshed, no disease. And someday when Christ returns at the consummation, he will make it perfect again. Who is looking forward to that? Amen. Amen. Absolutely. And then the second, see the corruption. Because a real man in real history, our real representative head, 
He really did sin. And we all really do descend from him. That's why we're all sinners by nature and by choice. And we all need saving through the last Adam, Jesus Christ, the God who became flesh. He lived the perfect life we can never live. He died on the cross in our place. He paid the perfect, infinite debt we can never pay. And then he rose from the grave, defeating death, which we can never do. Friends, he's done all we never could. Repent and put your faith in him. He's our only way of salvation. But, amen. Amen. But remember, we had that need of salvation through the last Adam because of the sin of the first Adam. See the connection right back to Genesis. And then the catastrophe, the flood of Noah's day, was a global judgment on man's sin, a holy, righteous judgment. And there was one way to be saved through the door of the ark. It's a picture of Christ. Because hear me, dear friend, there's another global judgment coming. The next time, it is by fire and for eternity. And there's one way to be saved. Jesus said, I am the door. If by me any man enter in, he shall be saved. It's all pointing to Christ. And then, man, look out right now. The fourth see here, the confusion of the Tower of Babel. I love talking about this for so many reasons. There's whole talks on the issue of the Tower of Babel, one blood, one race, all those sorts of things. But what that history reminds us of is this. All people today can trace their family trees back to Noah, his sons, and their wives. Actually, every person who has ever lived can trace their family tree back to one man, one woman, Adam and Eve. Dear friends, that means how many races are there? One, the human race. And again, since we all descend from Adam, amen. Since we all descend from Adam, that's why we're all sinners. And need is saving through the last Adam, Jesus Christ. You see that clear connection to the gospel. But hear me, if that first part is not true, like the world is screaming and much of the church is agreeing, then why should we trust the rest? And someone say, okay, Brian, I mean, I understand what you're saying here, but come on, buddy, it's just Genesis. It can't be that important. And I would really suggest to you the devil would love for you to believe that. It's interesting. I make a bold statement, but it's true. Every single biblical doctrine, either directly or indirectly, is founded in that history of Genesis 1 to 11. Every single one. A couple of quick examples. Where do we see the origin and definition of marriage? That is found in the book of Genesis, right? Chapters 1 to 11. Where do we see the origin of sin and death? That's over in Genesis, chapters 1 to 11. Why do we practice a seven-day week? That comes from? And only Genesis, by the way, chapters 1 to 11. Why do we wear clothes? I notice that you are, and that is good. Amen? Amen. That goes back to the book of? Genesis. Friends, how do we know that every person, no matter where they live, in the womb, on the moon, no matter what they look like, what their skin shade is, how tall or short they are, how athletic or unathletic they are, how musical or non-musical they are, every person has equal, inherent, indelible, eternal value because they're made in the image of the living God. That's found over where? Genesis. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why is he called the last Adam? Why do we need a new heavens and a new earth? It all goes back to the history of Genesis, chapters 1 to 11. Foundation for every biblical doctrine. You take away the foundation, the whole structure will collapse like we see happening right before our very eyes. Let me give you two very quick examples of biblical doctrines being attacked by attacking Genesis. The first one is marriage. And I'm sure we can agree this biblical doctrine is under assault today. And it's interesting. When Jesus was asked about marriage by the Pharisees, do you know what he did? Something crazy. He quoted the Bible. (laughs) He said to the Pharisees, have you not read? Translation, don't you read your Bibles? (laughs) That he who made them at the beginning, that's the beginning of creation, says Mark, made them male and? How we know there are two fundamental genders, right? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become? And he's quoting directly from Genesis 1.27 and 2.24. And he's showing that the doctrine of marriage is based on the biology and the history of Genesis being true. You become one in marriage. Why? Because it's based on the fact that the woman came from the man, like the Bible clearly describes all the way through. The woman, praise God, did not come from the ape woman. 
Praise the Lord. Amen. Praise. Hey, fellas, praise God all night for that. All right. Go forth rejoicing. Amen. Amen and amen. And dear Christians, we can say to people in our culture, lovingly, boldly, uncompromisingly, that marriage is to be between one man, one woman for life. Why? Because the God who made marriage, he made it between one man, one woman for life. Friends, God made it. He defines what it is. Not the president, not the Supreme Court. God defines it. Amen. You guys will get me fired up. I'm going to be here for like three hours. All right. Uh, but you know, we find that definition in the book of Genesis. But again, if that history is not true and or God's word is not the authority, then why not just redefine marriage and make it whatever you want it to be? Which is why our culture is doing that. As they abandon the biblical definition, some people are marrying pets. True. One person married a robot. One lady, true story, married a tree. I think she was trying to branch out. I don't know, but... <laughs> it's such a terrible joke. All right. Thank you. True story, bad joke. <laughs> and then one more big one, one more big doctrine being attacked today before we move on by attacking the history in Genesis. And that is the doctrine of death and its relationship to Christ's atoning work on the cross is also under assault. And people say, what do you mean? Follow me on this. You see, the Bible's clear that God made a perfect creation. And he warned Adam, the day you eat of the fruit, you'll surely what? Die. And the Bible is clear cover to cover that it was man's sin that brought death, the enemy, into God's perfect creation. It's intriguing when the atheist says, why did God make the world full of so much death and suffering? Why did he make it so broken? The answer is, he didn't. God made it perfect. We wrecked it in our sin. Bringing death and the curse into God's perfect creation. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And that sin affected everything. Romans 8.22 says, all of creation is groaning in pain because of man's sin. And is longing for Christ to return, to return the world to its original perfect state. We see the first death of an animal after Adam sinned. God killed an animal for the very first time. He shed its blood to make clothing for them, to cover their sin and their shame. It was a picture of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who comes later and sheds his blood to cover our sin and our shame. And most will say, okay, Brian, we are with you and all of that, but where is the attack? Here it is. If we, even with the best of intentions... Try to squeeze the secular idea, atheistic idea of millions of years into the Bible. No matter how you try, ultimately you'll put death before sin. And death before sin is theologically impossible for a lot of reasons. Here are a couple of quick ones. First, in Genesis 1, 29 and verse 30, in the original perfect creation, God told Adam and Eve they were to eat fruit, the animals were to eat plants. Originally, all things were vegetarian which I know may sound weird to us today because maybe you, like me, enjoy eating filet mignon wrapped in bacon, right? So it sounds weird, I get it, but it makes really good biblical sense because there was no death in this world until after Adam sinned, which means you can't eat meat until after he sinned because when you eat meat, you're eating an animal. That has died. Before sin, there's no death. All things have to be vegetarian. And by the way, plants are not alive in the strict biblical sense. Not until after the flood that God told Noah, just as I give you plants to eat, now Noah, post-flood, you can eat everything. And of course, this is the reason you can eat a hot dog, because it is everything. <laughs> Progressive revelation. Like, it's, I love it. The kids are like, why is that funny? Don't worry about it. Just enjoy the hot dog. All right. <laughs> But here's why this is a problem. If we reject the Bible's clear teaching that God made a perfect creation, but did man sin, bringing death into the world, and then later there was a global flood that laid down most of the rock layers and fossils we see today, if we reject that, well, what are we left with? Man's ideas. And what does man say? Well, man says the rock layers were laid down slowly over millions of years. Watch this. Long before man ever existed, and thus before sin, and in those rock layers, supposedly laid down before man, before sin, 
we find lots of evidence of animals eating each other. But the Bible says, before man sinned, all things were vegetarian. We find that same fossil record, lots of evidence of many diseases, things like brain tumors and cancer and arthritis. But before man sinned, the Bible says God looked down on day six before man sinned that called everything very good. Surely God would not call millions of years of death, suffering, bloodshed, cancer, very good. And by the way, if this were true, think about it. It makes God the author of death. It was part of his original very good creation. And by embracing this, in a sense, we're blaming God for death instead of our sin. We find thorns in the fossil record that the evolutionists say are millions of years old, but the Bible is clear thorns came after the curse. They're a result of the curse. Thorns are a symbol of the curse. And that's why Christ on the cross wore the crown of? He bore the curse on our behalf. And then most important of all, if you try to squeeze millions of years into the Bible, it doesn't matter how you try, no matter how good your intentions may be like mine were years ago, but whatever idea you try to use, day-age theory, gap theory, progressive creation, theistic evolution, framework, hypothesis, cosmic temple, etc., they all inevitably put death before sin. And watch this logically and theologically. If there was death before sin, that would mean death is not the consequence nor the payment for sin. Just always been around. And if death is not the payment for sin, then Jesus' death cannot and does not pay our sin debt. And we just undermine Christ's atoning work on the cross, whether we meant to or not. And at best, if that were true, it's not praise God. But if it were, it would make that event in history unnecessary at best. I think we can all agree that is unbiblical in the highest degree. And can I tell you something? This is why we care so much. Our passion is not about winning a debate about the age of the earth or radiometric dating or dinosaurs. We give good answers. But the point is to defend biblical authority and the gospel rooted in that authority. That's what's under attack. That's what's at stake. That's why it matters so much. Bottom line, the good news of Jesus Christ does not start in the book of Matthew. I like Matthew. But the gospel starts in the book of Genesis. It truly does. And someone say, okay, Brian, I mean, I hear you and all that, but then wait a minute. Are you then telling me that someone's got to believe in a 6,000-year-old earth and a literal global flood and a literal atom to be a Christian? Are you saying it's a direct salvation issue? Not at all. What's the Bible say about salvation? One verse to look at for now, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world, they gave his only son, that whoever believes in him and a young earth and a global flood will be saved. No, that is from second heresies, maybe third opinions. That's not in God's word. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So this, praise God. Amen. So this is not a direct salvation issue, but it is an indirect salvation issue. Because again, where does the message of salvation come from? It comes from the Bible. And once more, if we cannot trust this part over here, I trust the rest. Either it's all true and authoritative or none of it is. And dear Christian, we don't have the right nor the authority to treat God's word like a buffet. I'll take some of John 3, 16. I'll take Philippians 4, 13 out of context, but not Leviticus 18 or Genesis 1 to 11 or et cetera, et cetera. It's either all authoritative or none of it is. And friends, that is why it's so important that we obey, hear me, God's command to give an answer for our faith. Jude 1.3, to contend earnestly for the faith where the attack is happening today. And I think so many Christians, like myself a long time in the past, aren't doing this because we have bought so many secular lies. And one of those lies is this. They'll say, you cannot use the Bible to do science because the Bible is not a science textbook. Our response is, you're right, it's not. Praise God, those change every year. They do. But guys, where the Bible touches on science, we can trust it. Here's what it does for us. The Bible gives us the big picture of history to rightly understand geology, biology, anthropology, astronomy. It gives us the right understanding of the past that we apply to the evidence in the present. And that is so important because we all live in the present. Right? Right? Raise your hand if you're with me in the present. Just a quick check. And you guys are with me. Awesome. All right. Very good. 
Think about this tricky question. Don't answer out loud unless you really want to. But think about this. When do fossils exist, past or present? And the answer is they exist in the present. If they didn't, we would not have them. Makes sense when you think about it, right? And when you find a bone in the dirt, let's remember that bone does not come with a label on it saying, hey, I'm 65 million years old, made in China, or whatever. (laughs) They don't come like that. And here's a point. It's simple yet really important. All the evidence that any scientist has, biblical scientists, secular scientists, they've got all the same stuff in the present, the same rock layers and the same fossils, the same DNA, the same distance, starlight, all observed in the present. Here's the deal. They interpret those things differently in the present and make different guesses about where those things came from, their origin, and thus their age rooted in their different starting assumptions about the unseen past, rooted in their different worldviews. And here's the key. If you start with the wrong assumptions, put your faith in the wrong foundation, you'll likely get the wrong conclusions. And this is why, hear me, some really brilliant, smart, not dumb secular scientists can be so wrong about particular things like the age of the earth and rock layers and dinosaurs. Wrong assumptions, wrong foundational worldview, Wrong interpretations, wrong conclusions. Reminded of the story of an elderly gentleman who was sure his wife was going deaf. So one night he stuck up behind about 10 feet away and he whispered, Can you hear me, honey? He heard nothing. He got a few feet closer. Can you hear me, honey? Nothing. He got right behind her. Can you hear me, honey? To which she responded, For the third time, yes. Some of y'all get that later on. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Wasn't her problem, right? Wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions. And friends, please hear me on this. (laughs) Thank you. All right. All right, here we go. (laughs) Friends, there is no neutrality. That's another lie that we have bought. On every issue, hear me, it always comes down to this. Either God's word is your authority or man's word is. Every single time. Origins, dinosaurs, anthropology, sexuality, gender, marriage. Either God's word is the authority or man's word is. You put your faith in one or the other. We've all got faith. Just what do you, where do you put yours? That's what it comes down to. Every time. The Bible says this, Jesus said, either you're with me or against. Either you gather with me or you scatter. The mindset on the flesh is not neutral, hostile towards God. Friends, there is no neutrality. As Christians, we should understand that fundamental truth and lovingly, yes, uncompromisingly stand on God's word. There is no neutral. But here's the cool thing. It's exciting. When you stand on God's word, we've got answers. You can defend your faith, and they're not that hard. You don't have to be a PhD to defend your faith. Trust God's word. Have a biblical worldview. You've got all sorts of answers that have scared Christians to questions that have scared Christians had to death for decades. Questions like this one How did Noah get all those animals onto the ark? The atheists ask this like a mic drop. If you know God's word, this answer is really not that hard. Go to the biblical text. The ark was huge. Over 500 feet long, 85 feet wide, 51 feet tall with three different levels. Over a football field and a half in length. Capacity equaled almost 500 semi-trailer trucks. It's a floating warehouse. Friends, this was not Noah's Ark. (laughs) Do me a favor. If you see a picture like this in one of your kids' books, blow it up. And then the biblical text is clear. God brought to Noah pairs of all the land-dwelling, air-breathing animals according to their kind. And the word kind in the Bible, for the most part, is equal to about the family level of modern-day classification. What that means practically is this. Noah did not take 400 pairs of dogs on the ark. He most likely never saw a chihuahua or a poodle in his life. He was a blessed man. He took two of the dog kind, two of the elephant kind, two of the horse kind, two too many of the cat kind, but two of the basic kinds. 
And I was saying that to the major land-dwelling Airbnb animals according to their kinds, but no problem on that massive ship. And then we should be connecting the flood to geology. If there was a global flood that's described in the Bible, you'd expect to find billions of dead things buried in rock layers that were laid down by water all over the earth. And friends, what we find is billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. And their features scream a rapid recent formation, rightly understood. And someone said, but I thought it took a long time to make a rock layer. Not at all. Water, dirt, minerals, right conditions. You can make these things really quickly. A few recent examples in nature. Here's a ship's bell encased by rock. Here's an ancient clock in a rock. There is a spark plug encased in rock. Of course, that's not millions of years old. Or you might remember Mount St. Helens erupting back in 1980. And from that minor eruption by historical standards, it produced rock layers. Huge rock layers. It produced these rock layers in hours. It produced canyons like this one. Nicknamed the Mini Grand Canyon because it's 140th the size of the Grand Canyon with similar features to the Grand Canyon. And it formed that canyon in nine hours. We just watched it happen. Great observable, testable, repeatable, scientific evidence. It doesn't take that long to make those sort of structures. What you need is a catastrophe. And if you want bigger rock layers and bigger canyons like found around the world, you need a bigger catastrophe, maybe like a global flood, described in God's word. And someone say, but I thought it took a long time to make fossils. Actually, no. To make a fossil typically is a rapid process. You've got to bury something deeply and quickly to protect it from scavengers and decomposition, to give it a chance to become a fossil. A few examples of this rapid process. Here's a petrified ham. <laughs> petrified ham. Turned to stone in less than 60 years after being buried from a volcanic eruption. Now, what do you do with it? I don't know, but there it is, a petrified ham. Here's a fish fossilized in the act of eating another fish. By the way, this is not that uncommon. You see a lot of these sort of fossils. But this poor guy is buried pretty much instantaneously. He did not get to finish his last meal. And that's why I call this fossil the Last Supper. (laughs) Maybe not appropriate. I do understand that. Okay. Here's an ichthyosaur, an ancient marine reptile fossilized in the act of giving birth. Again, pretty much instantaneous. And speaking of recent formations, I could be here all night on this, but we are now literally finding all around the globe, we're finding soft tissue from dinosaurs still intact in their bones. The tissue is still stretchy. You can pull it, it'll spring back in place. There are often blood vessels and red blood cells still intact in that tissue. And those organic remnants like our flesh, they are made of mostly water. And they should not last hundreds of years after the creature's death. Maybe thousands. No way millions. And we could just keep going on and on. Let's go to a social issue. If you stand on God's word, we can answer questions like this one. What about the issues of gender and identity? How do we give an answer to that? Well, trust God's word from the beginning. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, he made man in his image. Male and female, he created them. God made how many genders? Male and female. Dear friends, hear me. If he made you a boy, he made you a boy on purpose for his glory and your good. If he made you a girl, he made you a girl on purpose for his glory and your good. And both men and women equally display the image of the living God. Are we different? Yes. And praise God for that. Amen. Amen. Different in so many ways and different roles assigned to us by our creator, but equal in value because we're made in the image of the living God. And biblically, you cannot separate how you feel and your felt identity to your physical reality. It all goes as one of the same by your creator. Genesis 5.2, male and female, he created them. Leviticus 15.33, male or female. Matthew 19, made them male and female. Mark 10, male and female. It's like there are only two options. (laughs) Because there are from the creator. And some would say, okay, but the, the science back this up? Absolutely. Genetically speaking, you're either XX or XY. Literally, your gender is stamped on every cell of your body by your creator. He assigned you your gender out of love for you and for his own glory. He knows you perfectly well. Trust him. He knows you better than you know yourself. Put your faith in him. And some will say, okay, but then wait a minute. What about for some people, a very small, small, small percentage, they have these mutations in their genome which cause abnormalities in the sex chromosome, and they're born with some physical difficulties trying to decipher which gender they actually are. What about those? 
Well, the biblical answer is this. Sin broke everything. And the curse came with sin. And the curse causes mutations. And mutations are mistakes in our genome. And mutations cause all sorts of problems, genetically speaking. But these things aren't normative or part of God's original perfect creation. They don't define who we are. They're part of the broken creation because of man's sin. And someone say, okay, but then wait a minute, you're missing the point, Brian. According to the secular argument today, your identity, how you feel, can be separated from your physical reality. How do we give an answer to that? And how come some people feel so different from their physical reality? How do you explain that biblically? I explain it like this. Disney is wrong. You say, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. What is the major theme of every Disney movie? Follow your heart. Look inside. Follow your heart to find who you are. That's who you really are. The Bible says that's a horrible idea. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Friends, we've been broken by sin. We're all broken by sin. And we're so broken by sin, we see the world wrongly. We're so broken, we see ourselves wrongly. We view our own sexuality and gender wrongly. Why? Because we've been broken by sin. The answer is Genesis chapter 3. Man's sin corrupted all of creation, including our own thinking. Hear me. Don't follow your heart. Follow your creator. Follow Christ. And in Christ, you will find your true identity, your true purpose. You'll find healing. You'll find your identity for eternity in Christ, but in Christ alone. Repent and put your faith in him. Salvation and fulfillment will never come from autonomy. Disney is wrong. Submit to your creator and your redeemer. And there you'll find out who you truly are and have eternal salvation. Amen. And you see, that answer isn't that hard. We just go back to God's word. If we stand on God's word, friends, we've got answers about all sorts of things with that biblical worldview. And we use those answers to get people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And real science and real observations will confirm the Bible again and again and again. But really foundationally, what this is in our culture today, to wrap up here, it's a foundational fight between God's word and man's. That's really what this is. A battle over authority. And really what we've seen has been a shift in our culture, away from God's word to man's as the authority. And we've seen the collapse of the Christian worldview of more relativism taking over our culture today because so many generations today, both outside and inside the church, no longer build our thinking on God's word. We're seeing the collapse of the Christian worldview. So what do we do about it? Good question. Glad you asked. <laughs> All right, we've got good news. There are answers. Now, sum up with these little castle diagrams, kind of iconic to the ministry of answers in Genesis. Castle on the right represents Christianity built on the authority of God's word, starting in Genesis 1 to 11, and the biblical doctrines and the gospel that come out of that foundation. Castle on the left represents secular humanism, the idea that man can determine truth and the moral relativism that comes from that worldview. We see the effects in our culture today. And note a couple of things from this picture that I think are accurate to our culture. First, note the humanist, driven by the enemy, whether they realize it or not. They're not focusing today their attacks on things like the deity of Christ or the virgin birth. They'll attack that, but don't focus there. No, they're focusing on the history of Genesis 1 to 11, the foundation of all biblical doctrines. Because they understand that once that foundation goes, what will happen to the rest of the structure? It'll collapse and fall. And then note the Christians. You'll recognize some of these people. Some have no idea what's going on. (laughs) Don't look around, all right? Some are utterly asleep. Some are fighting each other over typically trivial things like what color should the carpet be, which hymnal should we use, how do you brew the coffee in the church, dark or light? The answer is dark while we're talking about this, all right? (laughs) Praise God. (laughs) And then there are actually, there are many, unfortunately, and I was here for a long time myself just for transparency, there are many who are right here who are saying, you know what, maybe God used evolution in millions of years. He doesn't worry about it, just trust in Jesus. And they are destroying their own foundation, whether they realize it or not, actually assisting the enemy, whether they mean to or not. And by the way, this guy who's doing that in the picture, he has on a suit and a tie. There's a reason. He represents the majority of our pastors, Christian leaders, seminary professors who are compromised to one degree or another on this issue. 
raising coming generations of leadership to be compromised as well. That's a huge issue. And I think most of us, we look out, we look at this guy, and we really connect with him because we look out to our culture and we see all these social ills and so many more could be listed. And we say to ourselves, man, we've got to fight against those things. And we should fight against those things in truth and in love. You do God's will, God's way. So, of course, we do stand, but hear me, as we fight against those things, please understand, those things are not the problem. They're the symptoms. They're the symptoms of a loss of biblical authority in our culture today. And for all the money, time, and energy Christians have put forth fighting those symptoms, those balloons, is it working? What's the answer? Oh, we're becoming less Christian every day, right? Why isn't it working? Well, because in a real sense, hear me, dear Christian, we have been playing checkers. The enemy has been playing chess. We've been attacking symptoms. He's been attacking the foundation of our faith and the faith of the coming generations. You see, when we just attack the symptoms and don't deal with the foundational authority issue of God's word versus man's at a foundational level, all we're trying to do is to Christianize a culture, to make it more Christian-y, most likely to make it more comfortable for us in hopes, right? But you see, the Bible doesn't say to Christianize a culture. The Bible says, no, we preach the gospel, and we make disciples teaching all that God commanded. Amen? And as we teach God's word, proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ, God works through his word by his spirit, and he changes people from the inside out. And that'll change our thinking. That can change our culture. You see, we're losing this quote-unquote culture war because we are fighting the symptoms and not the source. So what is the solution? In a word, dear Christian, stand. Stand on biblical authority. Stand on God's word because fundamentally this is a battle over authority and you can't defend biblical authority by abandoning biblical authority. And we stand on God's word and equip our kids to stand on that right foundation. And we do engage the culture. We fight these issues. But as we fight these issues, we recognize we're not fighting multiple issues. We're fighting one core issue of authority with multiple symptoms. It's really about whose word is the authority. And we raise up generations. And we equip ourselves to stand on God's word, know what we believe and why rooted in this foundation, able to give answers and deal with the symptoms by going to the source. How? By standing on God's word. In that, we can defend the faith and proclaim the good news effectively. And hear me, dear Christian, the answer to all the problems in our culture, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. It is. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, always has been the answer. It always will be the answer. But that gospel stands on the authority of God's word, which begins in the book of Genesis. And that's why we care so much. This is why we're so passionate. And friends, that is your introduction to who we are as a ministry and our passion. And really our passion, praise God, is not just to say it. Amen. Praise God. God is very gracious. My passion is not merely to proclaim this, which I do love to do, but to equip you that you would be equipped and encouraged in God's word to defend the faith where you're at, in your schools, in your workplaces, on the ball field, at Walmart, at Starbucks, wherever you're at, to know what you believe and why, rooted in God's word, not to win arguments, but to show people God's word is true, to proclaim the gospel effectively, that people might get saved for the glory of God and the good of mankind. That's what this is all about. A few things I would point you to to really tangibly get equipped. First of all, the website, answersingenesis.org. Be sure you take a picture of that, bookmark that, use that. There are thousands of answers, all free on the website. Articles, videos, you can watch, read, or share with people very easily. It's a fantastic resource answering so many questions about the Bible and science, the Bible and social issues. Great resource. Be sure you use that. And then we brought some of the cream of the crop of our resources here with us that you can purchase if you would like to really get equipped with this. We've got some special packs from heavily discounted just for you guys. First one will be this one. We've got the teen and adult pack back there in the lobby area. comes with those six books. Fantastic resources for you to be equipped to defend the faith. The book in the middle on the bottom there, Divided Nation, that's basically what you just heard in book form, just in a bit more detail to share this message with others. Then Answers Book 1 gives you 30 answers of 
some of the most asked questions today about science in the Bible. A creation of the Bible is a commentary that you can easily understand on Genesis 1 to 11. Will they stand top right there? Challenging book, but a good one for parents and grandparents. Are we obeying God's command to equip coming generations to stand on God's word, defend the faith effectively in the culture we live in today? And the gospel reset, how to share the gospel effectively, one race, one blood. The only answer to racism is found in God's word. And the book talks about that. So well done. Then we've got the kids' library pack. You can buy for the kids, like 12 and under, 13 and under. The answers for kids, those eight smaller books, bottom right-hand side there, are phenomenal. It's a real question from a real kid with a paragraph answer. Easy to understand. Actually, as I was reading these with our kids, I was learning, and I teach this stuff for a living. So they're such good resources. They really are. And so really great resources. The book about dinosaurs, good biblical answer there. We can talk about that later on if you would like. And then, of course, One Blood for Kids. Talk about the Ark as well. Or you can do the Super Library Pack, which includes all those books, plus two others. Ken Ham's new book, that's our founder, Divine Dilemma, explaining why there's so much death and suffering in the world from a biblical perspective, and then the flood of evidence, talking about the rock layers and fossils and so forth. And you're saying, okay, Brian, that's all good. I'll get that. But also, tell me, Brian, what is the best book in the ministry? The best book is this one. It's called Quick Answers to Tough Questions. It's the best book because it is my book. <laughs> right? Amen, somebody, right? Maybe not the best. I don't know. But it gives you short, concise answers. Each answer is less than 500 words. Very short, very concise, very ADD friendly. <laughs> Good for ages 9 to 90, all right, on this one. So this book answers 33 questions about the Bible, science, like who became Mary, dinosaurs in the Bible, age of the earth, carbon-14 dating, all those sorts of things. I wrote a second book, by God's grace, called Quick Answers to Social, Social Issues. Where I give you biblical answers to the social issues of this age, issues of life, equality, sexuality, and environment. So biblical answers to abortion, euthanasia, stem cell research. What about social justice? What about transgenderism and homosexuality? What about climate change? Short, concise, keyword, biblical answers. And we got answers. They're really not hard. They are not popular. That is true. But they're not hard if we just trust God's word. And so you can kind of swap my books in for the other packs if you like, or just buy those two books on your own from one individually, or buy them two for 20 if you like. Special deal here for the conference. And then as we begin to wrap up here, we've got our magazine comes out quarterly. It's so well done. It has two separate magazines, one for the adults, one for the kids. Kids love it scientifically proven. There is my son reading at 15 months because he is advanced. <laughs> anyway... And when you subscribe to the magazine, you get those two. And also you get a third magazine, the digital one, which has a special thing. You get audio uh, articles as well from that. It reads it to you, which is great. And you listen to all that stuff rather than read it if you would like. And when you subscribe to it, you get a free book while you're here, fearfully and wonderfully made from our incredible pro-life exhibit at the Creation Museum. Great resource. comes with a subscription if you get that here. You can sign up for our newsletter if you would like. Answersinsider.com comes out monthly. So keep aware of what's happening within the ministry. And by the way, just so you know, if you are trying to escape California, maybe you're staying to be in Salt and Light. Do that. That's wonderful. But if you do want to come work for the Ministry of Answers in Genesis, we can probably find a spot for you. We have so many opportunities to get plugged into the ministry in so many different areas. Everything from artistic work, drawing, sculpting, those sorts of things, to landscaping, to computer work, IT, to everything in between, teaching, all sorts of stuff. Go to the website. Go to the Bob. Look at the Plug in your resume. Maybe come join us over at Answers in Genesis. And then we also have Answers.tv. That's our own streaming platform. And so it's like Netflix or Disney+. Plus. But if you have Netflix or Disney+, Plus, it's okay. There's time to repent. <laughs> and turn away from that. But Answers.tv, we have over 6,000 videos on that streaming platform, adding more all the time. And it's, there's stuff for the entire family, stuff for little kids, stuff for teens and adults, everybody in between. It's only 40 bucks if you do an annual subscription. That's like 3.30 a month. There's a seven-day free trial, such a great resource. So go to answers.tv, try that seven-day free trial. I know you'll love it. It's such a great thing. It's safe for the entire family. Your kids can watch whatever they want, and they'll be God-glorifying, edifying, gospel-centered, and focused. And you can, it's just safe for anything they watch, and also entertaining. So be sure you check that out. If you've got questions about anything, feel free to come see me while we're here. I'm not here much longer. I'd love to chat with you guys. We can talk about what I said tonight. You can ask me about any of the other stuff. We can talk about dinosaurs. We can talk about sexuality. We can talk about biblical authority and whatever issue you would like. But feel free to come see me. It's my privilege to be here. It truly is. I love, by God's grace, 
the body of Christ. I love what he's doing right here through you, where you're at. If I could be any part of that, it's my privilege. Amen. So come see me. Come talk to me. And then if you think of something later, you can find me on Facebook in particular. Send me a message on Facebook. I'll be glad to help in any way that I can. But guys, all of this, as we wrap up, it's not simply to win an argument. No, we're defending biblical authority to proclaim the good news that our culture so desperately needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for tonight. God, I praise you for my brothers and sisters who are here being the light you've called them to be. God, I praise you for the privilege of worshiping you together. The privilege of getting to know each other just a little bit here. Maybe we'll meet again later on sometime here on this planet, but if I don't see my brothers and sisters here, I know I'll see them one day in heaven. What a beautiful reality. But Lord, there's work to be done before we come home. We've been called by you. You've commanded us to stand on your word, to give an answer, to contend earnestly for the faith. You told us to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Yes, our hope, Lord, is in you and in you alone. And you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Your word is our rock. It is a lamp unto our feet. And we walk by its light, unashamedly, uncompromisingly, but also lovingly. Lord, help us to love what is just, to proclaim what is right and true. But also, as we do that, we love kindness. We love mercy. We want to see people get saved. And we walk humbly with our God. That you will be glorified. That we would fellowship with you as we are obedient. That we would know you and make you known. By loving with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Dear Lord, we cannot do this on our own. But Lord, you do it through us. Through your word through your spirit, by your power, for your glory alone. Oh, our God, be glorified through our lives. For your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.